Hey everyone, welcome to the Wallet Podcast. I'm James Marshall and this episode is brought to you by the great Todd's Racing, who is one of the greatest harness trainers in New Zealand. So go give Todd's Racing a follow on Facebook and Twitter. It would be much appreciated. Also, the Waterlad Coffee Bean. Now, I'm getting great feedback from anyone who's given this coffee bean a go. It is freshly roasted. So go get yourself some Waterlad Coffee Bean by heading to waterlad.com, clicking the Pomeroy's logo, or head into Pomeroy's Cafe if you live in Nelson and ask for the Waterlad Bean. You will not regret it. Anyway, i got a good one for you today, so let's roll the intro. Waterlad, 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 Waterlad. Righto guys, today I have an absolute treat for you all in the form of one of New Zealand's great lads and a New Zealand rugby legend. He's played for the New Zealand age grade reps more times than anyone else on this planet. He was also the face of the Southland Stags, he was the ultimate Highlander and he was also a Chiefs legend. And as well as all that, he achieved his ultimate goal of becoming an All Black and since then he's played for teams including Ohio, Montpellier, Poe and Austin but what he's probably most well known for is being an absolute lad. He's one of the greats. It is, of course, Jamie Whopper McIntosh. Welcome, Wops. Welcome, Diddy. <laughs> Great to have you on, mate. Mate, so many teams. You've seen it all. You've been everywhere. What a career. Yeah, it's been a, a hell of a ride the last seven years, as we'll probably catch up on. But um, nah, pumped to be on here, bud. Uh, I've been doing plenty of travel and listening to plenty of the podcast and um Particularly enjoyed the one with you and Tojo, um, so I was always looking forward to getting on here and <laughs> chewing the fat with you. Oh, mate, it's an absolute pleasure. So where are you at the moment? You're in isolation? Yeah, um, I'm in Rotorua of all places, oh, yeah. uh, day six into isolation. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's a bit of a bizarre feeling, really, like, had six months just, um, I left New Zealand to go to Austin, and we arrived there, and COVID was a pretty big part of our team. We're living in bubbles and training in bubbles and masks and, you know, it was a pretty tough time and then we were all vaccinated and double vaccinated and mm. um, after that, the last three months, we've been living life normally over there and found it a bit of a shock to the system coming back through New Zealand and, you know, I guess the stigma around COVID and just the way the country's gone differently about it compared to, you know, say America where they've learned to live with it and, yeah, sitting in IQ is a little bit of a strange feeling to be fair. How have you been keeping busy? Uh, I've been really lucky. Um, had lots of work on with the Otago team. Yeah. Um, reviewing and previewing from Malapi here. Um, got a Watt bike on deck. Oh. And I'm um, really lucky in the same hotel. We've got um, Peely Kelly who played with me, uh, Jason Robinson from Counties last year, and uh, Dan Hollenstead who's playing for Auckland this season. So we go for walks in the yard, oh, catch nice. up and chew the fat. So you're back with Otago coaching them this season, is that right? Yeah, um, yeah. I was really lucky last year. I'd come back to New Zealand just before the country shut down, um, was really fit, still playing rugby, and um, was offered a bit of a lifeline to go down to Southland or Otago, and one of my good friends, well, best friend, Tom Dolly, head coaching Otago, and I ended up lining up there and um, being the scrum coach, and I think I ended up playing nine or ten games, and absolutely loved it, and yeah, managed to wear my way back into a full-time coaching gig there with the Fords this year, which I'm super pumped about. Mate, and you've got a pretty impressive squad on paper. You'll be looking forward to getting your hands on these boys. 
Yeah, I can't wait. Um, particularly our back line's pretty exciting, but... <clears throat> You're not doing the backs, are you? <laughs> I should be. <laughs> I always told Denny I was, a, <laughs> I was the first one stuck in a prop's body. <laughs> um, nah, Ricky Flutie is a really talented coach. Um, oh, yeah. He's got their backs in attack, and yeah, look, we were really disappointed last year. We blew out in the semi-finals, and we had the squad to go through and you know probably take Cooks Bay down in that final. But um, hopefully, we learned our lessons. Would you chuck the boots on this year? Look, I just come off fifteen games over in America, and the rugby over there was really tough this year, and still really enjoying my footy, and I think playing some of my best footy actually into my thirties. So. Uh, I really want to develop the boys down there, but if there was an opportunity to play, I'd love to. But um, I think my first focus is, you know, we've got to got to get this Ford pack going so we can get those back some good ball. And um, so I'll probably get down there and knuckle into it. But uh, I would love to think that I'd play one or two games. But there we go. That's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and are you back to Austin next year, or was was that your time done over there? No, look, really, really exciting time for our team personally. Austin, we're, we've got joint ownership with um, LA. And the guy who owns our team, a guy called Adam Gilchrist, not the, not the cricketer, uh, a really successful businessman in Australia. He's only 42. He played Australian schoolboys rugby and knows a lot of the rugby men. And he actually founded F45 and moved, went to America and settled up with um, Mark Wahlberg and and they've made an absolute fortune out of F45 over there, and we're lucky that he owns both our teams. And mm. yeah, look, it's it's a really option. Like my team wants me back next year to coach the forwards and maybe play one season. It's just been such a you know such a hectic last couple of months. So I just need to uh, get back, take a breath, and do a good job for Otago and make a good decision around that. But he actually Adam just floated F45 last week, and he what did he make? I think he cleared three hundred and seventy million on the opening day that the uh, <laughs> he, um, so his net worth or the company was worth uh, one point five billion. Wow! Yeah, went up six percent. So he had a good day. Paid for our tire float, which was a good start. True. Talk me through that tire float. I saw some uh, footage on your Instagram, and it might have been uh, big Seb De Chavez as well. You guys look like you're having a hell of a time. Yeah, Mad Monday. We. Um, took a bus out to the river and they drop you off with a whole lot of floats and chili bins that float and speakers that float. And we spent five hours floating down the river drinking <laughs> beers. And um, yeah, we ended up trying to have a cordy after that, which wasn't that successful. So uh, yeah, real, real good mad Monday. <laughs> Who was running the cordy? Yeah. No, they wanted me to. I sat in the back. I, I, I um I prefer to watch these days and uh, yeah they run it very poorly to be fair. Did they? Oh, um, you would have been itching to take over, no doubt. <laughs> I wasn't. I was having such a hoot. Um, but yeah, typical stuff: broken TV, two chairs, and an extra six hundred on the Airbnb bill. So the boys are sort of fighting their way through that at the moment. Who's Airbnb? Was it, mate? Last time you stuffed up my Airbnb. Oh, <laughs> I had to delete my account hey, mate, after you. <laughs> mate, well, I, left, I left my car there for six weeks and went on holiday. When I went to pick up my car, I was so scared about seeing that chip. <laughs> and I could see her in the kitchen and I crawled. I crawled <laughs> underneath the, the fence and got in my car and just bladdered it. <laughs> she wanted me off this earth because you pissed her bed. I'm still filthy at that. I, 
I did not persevere. <laughs> Fonatea persevered. And who's Tojo's mate? Monkey. <laughs> Monkey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, my suspicion was Monkey, actually. That was probably the worst stag I've ever been a part of. <laughs> what well, about our beer table trip? Like, <laughs> he just took us out to a road in the middle of nowhere and we pedaled like 60 metres. Yeah. Well, Tojo's put me in the most random spot in a new country where I've all tried to organise through these tours and they've absolutely let me down big time. It was a blowout. But it was a good time. And then we end up not even drunk, not even drunk downtown <laughs> Barcelona and Speedos and... <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty fucking awkward to be fair. <laughs> Mate, you must have been drunk. You were wrestling Fonatier on the beach everywhere. <laughs> Mate, that is one man that I'm scared of drinking. He he attacked me the night before and I had to succumb. I, I'd had enough. <laughs> and uh, I had a purple patch on the beach and I wanted to take him down, but it wasn't a great idea. <laughs> oh, good times. <laughs> oh, how was big Isaac Ross in the end of your do? He is a good man. Yeah, he's good. The boys called him the mounted candle over there. <laughs> Did they? <laughs> he's, he's got a body like a mounted candle, so I quite enjoyed that. <laughs> he, uh, oh, you know what Zachy's like. He's a, he's a great fella. Um, yeah. Really enjoyed it. Took his four kids and his wife over there, and, yeah, you know, they, I hope they're settled in for next season, and me and him are co-coaching the Fords, and um, I enjoyed working with them. It was a good time. Oh, nice. Is he coaching them next year with you, potentially, or still going to play? I think the both of us are still going to play and coach. So Nice. Look, it's a hard balance to get right, to be fair. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of work, so you've got to wrap your head around and go in there fresh because six months of like properly prepping a Ford pack week to week can be and playing is uh, mm. it's not much time off, but it's a lot of fun. So, yeah, if we go back, I look forward to getting into it again, definitely. Mate, how good is that? Anyway, we've got so much to get through on this on this run sheet here. What so much, so much has happened in your career. But we need to start at the start. I mean, I'm not sure if you're ever little, but um, as little as you were, talk me through your times growing up. Yeah, um, from the farm was really lucky. Had a great. I've still got a great family. Mum, dad, two older sisters, and the younger brother, and um, yeah, just a magic upbringing on the farm. Taught us a lot of our work ethic and. And I guess a little bit of our toughness into like sticking at things. And um, yeah, unfortunately, I was big when I was young and I never made an age group. Well, I used to have under 58s, under 65s. And <laughs> I'd cry myself to sleep right until I was 13 because I never made any of these teams. How big so were you? First team, I remember yeah. my first year in high school, I was uh, third form, I was 87 kilo. Oh, yeah. And then I put on 10 kilos a year right through to sixth form. So <laughs> I went 97, fourth form, 108, fifth form, and then 116, sixth form. I think seventh form, I was 122. Holy heck. <laughs> Big oh, boy. It's ridiculous. I don't know. Like, I think I used to drink a lot of milk. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of milk you're drinking. <laughs> <laughs> I drank a lot of milk, but I was never 130 clicks. <laughs> <laughs> But were you always were you always good at rugby, like through your age groups, even though you you're big, you obviously dominated them in terms of size, but did you know you were gonna be quite a good rugby player? Oh I I think around ten, eleven, twelve I was I was playing number eight. I was I wasn't that big or fat, but I sort of chucked on that weight over high school. But I did start to get really super competitive and you know, you start realising guys that you're playing against and start wanting to beat them and 
Yeah. That was probably then when I sort of really realised I was competitive. And then, yeah, when I hit high school was when my rugby all took off, really. Like, I went into the under-15 tournament team when I was 12. I had three years in that and in the first 15. And, yeah, look, I, I always loved rugby from when I was young. Um, from all of my dad's mates, they still do it now. Five of them meet up and watch every All Black Test, every World Cup game. And mm. I used to love going around to the houses and playing footy against the other kids and um, watching the All Blacks play. And no, it was just how we grew up, and it was um, always what I wanted to do. And always what I told my parents what I wanted to do was play professional rugby. So that was from when I was about 13. So that was pretty cool to actually to do that. So when did you move from eight into the front row? Uh, when I was 12, that first year at high school, I went 12, 13, I was a young guy. So I went into hooker and, um, yeah, like for the next few years, I was always playing guys a lot older than me and I was shitting myself. So I think that's where I learned a little bit about myself. Um, went from hooker then to prop in full form and then was basically prop for the whole way through into um, first 15 where we had a really successful first 15. We made the top four twice and to Three years, got knocked out to the semi-final against Napier and I think one to Rotorua. So, yeah, we had a class team and a lot of guys went on to play ITM Cup and quite a lot of super players, actually. Mate, and you obviously a big part of that success because, you, like I said in the intro, you played so many games. What was it? I think 32 games for New Zealand age grade. That's unbelievable stuff. So what year did you first make New Zealand schools? Yeah, it was crazy, um, Jimmy, to be fair, like, so the first year, 2001, I was only 16, and our team made the top four. We played Rotorua in the semi-final, and after they named the squad for the New Zealand schools, and I'd made it. In fact, we toured the UK. Um, so as a 16-year-old, I was picked in that team in, say, September, and then after Christmas Day, we all met up in Auckland. We had, like, a crazy squad. You couldn't be in a tinger. Joe Rokokoko, um, John Afoa. Oh, you couldn't. It was crazy. Mm. I think there was 18 All Blacks in it. And we toured the UK as our New Zealand schools team for six weeks. And I played um, eight tests. True. Um, and then come back for a week, went to school, and then flew back up to Palmerston North and made the New Zealand under-19 World Cup squad that went to Italy. And then actually the day that they were flying to Italy, there's a little story um, because uh, I, I, I was only 16, they deemed me too young for the tournament. So I got called into the coach's room with all the management. And I was like, fuck, I, I thought I'd done something wrong because um, I was rooming with Thomas Waldrum and I, like, I hadn't even seen a naked girl before. And Thomas, he loves the story. He took me to the strippers like two <laughs> nights before. And uh, I, I thought that they knew that I'd gone to the strippers and they were going to drop me. So I walked into this room and I was so nervous. <laughs> and um, and then they ended up saying, hey, look, bud, we're real sorry. We couldn't get a dispensation. So the team flew to Italy, and I flew back to beautiful Invercargill. But um, at that stage, I've got to keep my gear, and that was the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get into the strippers? Did you look really old as well, even though you were 16? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I looked like this when I was about 15, right? <laughs> Oh, that's oh, honestly, I'll never, I'll never figure that day in my life, mate. You must have been pretty good though. Like, that's no mean feat, eh? Like to be in there at that age. So you obviously physically developed pretty early, but you obviously had the talent to back that up as well. Yeah, I, I mean, 
things were happening so fast that I was just doing things instinctively and I would do things I think that wouldn't like make the odd ball carry or I remember my first test running on. That's like we were going to play the English under-19s and it was the first test of that tour and I was in the stadium in my number ones and Jerry Davison, the coach, come up to me is like about 10 minutes into the game saying, um, hey, go down and tell the reserve prop that you're going to swap stuff with him. I want you to play in the second half. So I went down and tapped this guy Jason Bowden on the shoulder and I'm like 16 I'm like hey uh, I think I've got to grab your shorts and socks and he's like fuck off and I'm like oh, honestly I didn't have boots mouth guard so it was really bizarre like I didn't even do the national anthem or the hucker and I went into the changing room got into these blokes boots that were too small and walked out and and when I ran onto the field like the first thing I did was the English guy ran at me and I tackled him and ripped the ball and ran the other way. So it was like a real big thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> and then just something, I always sort of was a bit tinny and did stuff like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just ended up in a pretty fortunate position where I played um, a lot of, a lot of age group rugby. Had a lot of Adidas gear at home. <laughs> yeah. As a 16 year old kid living the absolute dream. So did this make, did this give you the confidence oh, yeah. to that you knew you were going to become a professional rugby player from here and potentially go on to be an All Black? Did you feel pressure after being such a success at a young age? Yeah, I did feel pressure, but only I felt pressure because people who put themselves in that system normally get out of that system by these two things, like being lazy or turning up unfit. Or I just had a lot of pressure on myself from that young age that I wanted to be really fit and I never wanted to let people down in that kind of area so whatever camp was coming up um even at a 16 year old I'd learned how to train really hard um and that sort of I think that sort of kept me in that program for a for a long time because I was a lucid prop who was you know 125 kilos who could you know play 80 minutes and and I think more so after um the age group stuff when I started playing ITM Cup I felt the pressure of what I'd done before that you know um Mm coming into ITM Cup as a 19-year-old with a big reputation and coming into super squads at a young age, I was, like, shitting myself and, and knew that I wasn't, like, probably at that level yet. But I did play ITM Cup really young against a lot of good people. Like, I'm scrumming against Carl Hayman, Case Muse, Greg Summerall. Mm. Um, learned a lot of lessons the hard way, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. And it's so tough for a prop, eh? Like, you don't see many props playing ITM Cup at 19. Well, there's one story about I come straight out of school and was playing for the Honors development team, which was a first-class team back then, and we used to get two and a half grand a week or something. Oh, I yeah. thought it was Christmas. So we were up training with the Honors, and we had a game against them. And it, I don't know why. They played me a tight head against the proper Honors, but we didn't really push in scrums. Then later on in that year, Southland played Otago and Carisbrook, and um, I remember running, off the, running on the field. And I could hear Carl Heyman, Anton Oliver, there was um, Calvin Middleton, a few real guys. So, like, we gave this little puppers fucking chance. Let's, let's fucking murder him today. Like, they were into me the whole game. And I was just, like, sitting there sucking on my thumb being like, when is this going to be over? <laughs> um, yeah, you can, you can certainly was intimidating at yeah. times, but I guess um, I hung in there and, and learned a lot. Were you confident in your ability coming up against these guys or uh, shit now? Nah, I was, to be fair, I was confident in my ability around the field yeah. at all times to keep up with whatever team I was in. Um, just scrummaging is so hard for a young prop and particularly 
a prop my size, being tall, and I never found the right recipe for my scrummaging my whole career. There was lots of different reasons, but there was one thing that I did was work really, really hard at it. Um, for example, you know, we didn't have a lot of um, class tight heads at the Hollanders through my time there. We always had a scrum that was under pressure, but at the same time, I could have been better. And then I, I think I really only started to scrum well in New Zealand my my last year up at the Chiefs when I was about 30. Mm-hmm. Um and interestingly enough, when I kicked on overseas, um, I went into the top 14 in France, which is probably one of the hardest scrumming competitions in the world. And look, I ended up playing 75 games over there. And um, well, I think one season there was actually one of the one of the biggest accolades I got. I was like one of the top loose heads in the top 14. And for me, it was just things sort of, I started to understand things a lot better and get it right. And... Um, yeah, personally, it was in, I felt really, really good about myself over there that I could be competent against some of the best tight heads in the world. And as I said, sitting in the change room after a game, having a beer, knowing that you're competent at your job and the, and the guys in the room thought that you, or you know, you can feel that from the other players when they know that you're good at your job. It was, you know, probably some of the best feelings of my life. And it was a bit of a shame that it was overseas in France. But um, still, for me, it was... Um, wicked. Like I, I think coming back from playing for Otago last year, I put a lot of pressure on myself to transfer what I learnt in France back into Otago. And look, I scrummed um, really well in the ITM Cup and was was really happy to come back and put that back onto New Zealand soil. To be fair. Mm, so what what is it about the scrum that takes so long for guys to sort of learn? Can can you teach that craft, or is it something you just have to go through and? learn from experience because I mean a lot you hear it a lot a lot of props don't really feel like they're scrummaging at their best to in, into their 30s so why does it take so long I think young like some guys everybody's different yeah um shit taller guys do take longer like myself um you know like look at the scrutiny that White had to go through for his career around being long and mm. always going on about you know the same stuff hands on the ground and a lot of people don't understand the ins and outs of scrummaging, which is fine, but I hate the pressure that sometimes people put on younger players to come through. And like you look at the current crop of New Zealand props, um, guys like Angus Tarvo and um, like Atu Moli and all them boys, like uh, particularly Offa, like Offa was a 22-year-old running around against me when I was 30, and he was exceptional rugby player still finding his way with the scrummaging. And now look at him. He's one of the best scrummages in the world. Mm. I, I don't think there's any particular recipe. I do think that the two props in Mike Time, who got good really quickly, were, say, uh, Ben Tamiathuna and Owen Franks. They were really good at 22. And like, Ben was an exceptionally large, talented guy. And uh, Ben Tamiathuna and Owen Franks was an exceptionally strong, dedicated guy. So... Mm. Those two guys had special qualities that made them the best in the world at a very young age, I think. True, it's interesting, eh? It's a real, real art, real craft to it. I'd love to, I'd love to yeah. get in there one day. But <laughs> we normally do it on the bears, Jimmy. You're shit. <laughs> I think Tojo I... rates himself as a scrummager <laughs> so much. I can't wait to bury him. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he'll scrum against you after a couple, no doubt. Every time I have beers with Tojo after six, he just stares at me for like an hour. <laughs> and he just wants to scrum me the whole night. <laughs> oh, he loves it. 
But anyway, mate, back to you. We've talked about <laughs> you making your Southland debut really young, but you also were called into the Highlanders really young as well. So do you want to talk about how you got your first crack into the Highlanders? Because it wasn't conventional, was it? No, like I was picked in the squad out of, I think in 2005, I got Greg Cooper rang me up and named me in the full squad of like, so back then you had four props. Um, yeah, but unfortunately I had a, a meeting with the All Black coaches in a hotel room and in Chicago and there was Steve Hansen, Graham Henry and they just said, look, we think you're too young, you can do with another couple of years away from this. So yeah, I ended up saying no and I went from what, a $65,000 contract to a $10,000 training contract, <laughs> um, which evidently might have been good, I don't, I'm not too sure, but um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't debut for the Highlanders until 2007. Um, I think I was 21, um, and that was my first season. Played three or four games, but it wasn't anything special. I was just um, come off the bench and played a handful of games. My first season in 2008 was when I really got my opportunity. Started every game that year and um, got forward of the year and ended up getting picked in the All Blacks off the back end of that. Yeah, crazy. So was it your decision to pull out of that Highlanders or had they sort of told you or was it their call? Well, when you have the all-black coach sitting telling you this isn't a good idea and your end goal is to be an all-black, yeah. you're, you're not going to not listen to him. And, um, look, it happened again in my career around the Highlanders' captaincy, actually. Um, so through 2008, I, I was really lucky. I was super young. Made the All Blacks as a twenty-two or three-year-old, and yeah, you know, like was so like, making the All Blacks is a scary experience. It's it's an amazing one, but there's certainly a lot of emotions that go with it that people don't understand. And um, I remember the back end of that tour, the the Hondas, like I was twenty-two, and they were hell bent on me being the Hondas captain for the next sort of five to ten years. Mm. Um, they were ringing me every day, and I was in a meeting with Graham Henry and Steve Hansen, and they basically said, hey, look, bud, we want you to concentrate on your rugby and we don't think that you need the extra pressure of being a Highlanders captain, so we advise you not to do it strongly. So I turned down the Highlanders captaincy in 08 and 09 and then you know, evidently I never got picked back in the All Blacks, um, but I don't regret that decision because I think they were looking out for what was best for me. Um, but the thing is, evidently, in that environment, I took a massive leadership role anyway. So yeah. I was doing what I was going to do anyway. That's crazy. I've never heard of the All Black coaches having such a big say on guys' careers like that. Yeah, and like they were really good about it. It just it just pissed me off because I got stuck between my Highlanders coach, Glenn Moore, who was an absolute great guy, mm. and then the All Black coaches and them telling me one thing. And I'm like, mate, why don't you guys just ring each other and <laughs> save me going between each other and feeling like shit? Like, yeah. Um, because I, you know, you know, it's not fair on me. I'm only 23, and you know, I'll, fuck, of course I want to be the Highlanders captain. Um, but yeah, like everything happens for a reason, I guess. And big Jimmy Cowan took the Highlanders captaincy for that time, and um, I was living with him, and yeah, we had a we had a hell of a hell of a couple of years to be fair. Yeah, mate, you you were captain of Southland at a young age as well. So what was it about your game or leadership style that everyone wanted to make you captain? I don't know, maybe I was big. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't mind a beer at the afternoon. Um, nah, I always had a massive um, 
a really good understanding of rugby yeah. um, and loved it as well. And I had a good understanding when the team didn't understand things, so I'd quite often ask silly questions on behalf of the group, knowing that I knew it, but other guys, you know, that was what started from a young age. And then it was funny, I, I used to like speaking in front of the team a lot. The older I got, particularly in the last few years, I actually get quite nervous speaking in front of groups and teams. But when I was young, that came really naturally to me. And um, and I think it come back to uh, what I said to you before, like I always kept fit for a big guy. Um, I always prepared really, really well. And I love that saying that we always talked about, well, a few people do that there's talent and then there's things that don't require talent, which is um, – there's a list of eight or nine of them about being punctual, wearing the right stuff, being coachable, having a good work ethic. And I think I was really strong in that area, probably while I'm 36 and still playing, to be fair. Mm. Mate, that's powerful stuff. Powerful stuff mid-podcast from the big what? <laughs> yeah, got deep <laughs> Love that. Love I feel it. like Will Ferrell off that movie where I just I wake up. <laughs> where, where, where am I? <laughs> Oh, that's good. We need to get you back to that place a little bit more throughout this podcast. That's that's where all the gold is. But you did mention about your All Blacks, um, your we All Blacks cameo. So you played one official test for the All Blacks. Uh, talk me through that. The moment you're getting called in, how you felt about the whole experience. Um, well, I got named on the farm, and I had all my family out on the farm, and it's about ten thirty in the morning, and they all started drinking like pretty heavily and uh, then I needed to be at the airport at two and no one could drive so the local pub had to come pick us up and drive us in which was a pretty funny start. Um, Then, you know, look, it was a pretty crazy experience. Um, I got along really well on that tour with Andrew Hoare, Tony Woodcock, uh, Jason Eden. Um, There's a whole lot of us actually but, yeah, my first test was pretty hard like – was scrumming against a guy, you and Murray at that stage, who was in the Lions and one of the best props in Europe. And oh, at times I did really well, and at times I struggled. But the perception was that I was really poor. I haven't, uh, to be fair, I'm not lying to you. I've actually never watched that game again. Oh, true. Um, and it's probably a period of my life where I, I'm proud of what I did, but I actually look back, I'm still a little bit like, yeah, I haven't quite gone back into delve deep into that, but. My second game against Munster was really, really cool. Um, but believe it or not, when you get given your all-black jersey and you go back to the room, they present it to you. My name was spelt wrong. It was M-A-C, <laughs> I-N-T-O-S-H, not M-A-C-K. And, mate, I didn't know whether to tell anyone. <laughs> and I was like, fuck, what do I do here? And I was rooming with Woody and he's like, hey, mate, that's a big achievement. I'm like, yeah, my name's spelt wrong. And he's like, fuck, that's bullshit. Like, go down and tell all the managers and post and all that. And I was like, no, nah, I'll be right, man. I'll just get through the game. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's always a little story that comes along with me and my experiences. That was my first All Black one. True. Um, yep, and then that was it, I think. About 2010, we were playing really well for Southland and I got a call up possibly to go back over to Europe, but they ended up taking a tight head. That was probably as close as I'd been to getting back into the squad, I think. Once they settled with Wyatt, who's a great player and a great bloke, um, it was really me and him versus Woody, really. And back then, unfortunately, there was only one prop on the bench, so you would generally carry another tight head, and that sort of limited our opportunities for selections and what have you not. So if, if they had that rule, do you think you would have played a lot more games for the All Blacks? Oh, it's hard to say, mm. uh, Denny. Um, 
But when you put two loose heads on on the bench, it's not just Tony Woodcock, is it? So yeah. every test match is either going to be a more me or White on the bench at that stage, and mm. you know they would have pulled Woody off after sixty minutes. And you know you look at how many props are capped now because of that rule, and it's a fantastic rule. Um, you don't have to have a prop learning two sides of the scrums and having a whole lot of fucking collapsed scrums in the middle of a test match. So, mm. uh, yeah, uh, to answer your question, yep, I think a lot of us would have played a lot more rugby, but um, that's life, really. It is life. So did, did you feel confident as an All Black in that environment? Did you feel like you belonged there, or did you feel really uncomfortable? Super uncomfortable, mate, and even more uncomfortable after my first test. Like, oh, yeah. I felt like everybody in the team, oh, you know what I mean, when things don't go that well and, I was really hard on myself as well when I played. Um, just remember sitting in the team room, just wanted to go home. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I got another crack, and I actually played a, a pretty well against Munster, um, even though that game was really, really close. It was a super amazing experience. Uh, Tomlin Park, um, Bono dropped the ball off in a helicopter. It was the first time their stadium opened, and you know they nearly beat us, to be fair. But in that game, I scrummed um, really well, and had a pretty good game around the park and played 80 minutes. And, you know, I was proud of that game. Um, just unfortunately, I never got another go back in there to, like, you know, give it a crack. Mm. Disappointing. Eh? So what, what what would you do differently looking back? Would you? Is there anything that stands out that you'd do differently if you had the chance again? That's a, a good question. Um, and the way that I turned every stone under, like, I, and you know, you can even ask every team I was in. Mm. I was always trying to to find the recipe for my scrummaging, and I would do special things. I would go see Chrono for three days. I would be doing different things in the gym, and like all my focus was around how can I become a better scrummager because I knew if I got that right, um, then that would boost me back into the All Blacks. And there was opportunities and times in my career where I thought about there's an opportunity for me to go to the Crusaders or go to the Hurricanes to, and I thought shit yeah here's another opportunity to scrum with better players at that stage and to be fair Denny no like I wouldn't have done anything differently maybe I would have acted a bit more mature on that tour um, back in 2008 because mm. when you weren't playing we had a big group that weren't playing and we used to have a lot of fun like not so much drinking but um, I sort of become a bit of the team larrikin on the bus because I had to do the music and everybody would abuse me and then yeah. I ended up having to tell jokes and like, you know, those kind of guys. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I like naturally fell into that role and, and that was just what it was. But um, I had fun doing that as well. But maybe if I'd have been a bit more Frank's like, I think uh, maybe I would have been in there a couple. I don't know. You don't know. <laughs> Surely not. It must have been bad jokes if that cost you, cost you more All Black games. <laughs> well, it is in Corey James. The, the joke I told about Steve Hansen, it was a um, pretty good one. What was it? You never really forgive me, to be fair. Go on. What was it? I haven't read it. Oh. I should have read it. <laughs> oh, it's No, you shouldn't. It's, um, basically, it was after Wales test and the music wasn't working. All the boys were throwing stuff at me. Yeah. And I was like, mate, I didn't even have an iPad. I had to cut CDs back then. <laughs> and this bus was like not working. And they were like, you've got to tell a joke. And I told this joke about... A long story short, is about Steve Hansen and Ali Williams and that Ali Williams used to go spend Christmas holidays at Steve Hansen's place and um, they both loved betting on horses and Steve went to the TAB and turned around and Ali was there and Ali's like, he goes, fuck off home, you're too young. And Ali's like, I'm not. And he goes, 
well, can you dick touch your asshole? Now he's like, no, it can't. He goes, well, that means you're too young to go home. <laughs> so Shag stumbles home from the TAB and he walks into Ali's room and Ali had all this cash on his bed and uh, Shag was sitting there being like, oh, I've lost all my money. And he goes, oh, yeah, well, give me some of yours. And Ali said to Shag, can you dick touch your ass? And Shag said, yeah, it can. He goes, well, you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> 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 was shag bus. on the bus <laughs> mate he was standing right beside me <laughs> and the whole bus lost it like they were loving it because it was all like relative to their horses and that and he just looked at me and he goes good joke cock and I was like oh Jesus started sweating and then the worst thing is about it he grabbed the mic and told a joke about me and Ali and he's very sharp witted like yeah. he's a funny man and this one day he got the he got the punchline wrong, and then the whole bus just started going na 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 na, and I sat down in front of him and I was so embarrassed. And then for the next two weeks on the tour, he'd just lean over and poke me in the shoulder. He goes, "Any more jokes, Tom?" <laughs> Jeez, no wonder you felt uncomfortable so in the environment. Awesome. <laughs> oh, no, that was later on in the tour, but. Um, yeah, look, probably looking back, there probably could have been better jokes to tell, but um, <laughs> it was a beauty. Oh, that's good stuff. <laughs> oh. <laughs> anyway, we'll go, crack on with the career. And your Southland Stags career, obviously you were, you were a hero down there with the Stags and um, a lot of it revolved around a long run of shield defences, I guess. So um, any good memories that stand out from the – 2009 Shield defences. Yeah, I think winning the Shield obviously was a great thing. In 2009, it was a really cool time because we were super successful. We needed to beat Canterbury in the last game to make the major playoffs. That's out of all 14 teams, which is a big deal. Yeah. So we ended up beating Canterbury for the Shield and then making the major semi-final against Wellington the next week. Um, but yeah, winning that Shield with guys that I, like, Hardy, Scratcher, Jason Rutledge, and David Hall. Um, the guy, James Wilson, Robbie Robinson, Scott Cowan. That, to me, was a more, um, it was a lot different feeling to making the All Blacks. It was more of a complete, utter, like, jubilation of doing something extremely amazing with your best mates mm. and knowing that you're just going to send it for about four days after. <laughs> um, <laughs> Like there was no holes unturned. It was just it was it was one of the best feelings of my life. And then, you know, we went back and partied at the hotel that that Friday Thursday night. We flew back into Invercargill on the Friday um, and arrived at the airport. There was seven thousand people at the airport. We were there for four hours. Wow. Um, people just giving us stubbies and we were signing stuff. And then we were at the Spatesale House. That's when Hard obviously um, did the yes please. <laughs> yes please. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And then the next day, Bud, was really funny. Like Jason Carwell, who was a vice captain, Kenny Lynn, all great guys. The coaches text us, said, right, you stupid – I can't – well, probably shouldn't say that on the podcast, but you stupid CNTs. We've had a great couple of days. We've got a major semifinal against Wellington next week. Pull your heads and no drinking. So we got in a car and drove around. There was Roger Clark, David Henderson, Simon Colhane on that side – me, Jason Cowell, Kenny Lynn on the other, and we just went hammering tongs. We're like, we're drinking, and they're like, you're not. I'm like, we are. Like, we haven't had a beer together. Like, we've just been around people. Like, we want to sit in a room and just celebrate winning the Shield. Like, 
we actually want to take the Shields on a tour around all the country pubs where all us boys grew up. So our coach was like, after like an hour and a half at right, the only condition is we'll drive the vans and you boys can't drink a whole lot. So we're like, yeah, happy day. <laughs> um, it was the most incredible day of my Stag's career. We, dry, we arrived at the Riversdale pub where Jason's family's from. There was 1,100 people there and then we got bagpiped in. They've sure. never had a crowd like that in the pub. Yeah, We went to the Gore pub. We went to the Tokanui pub where I was from. It was about a six-hour bus trip and everywhere we went was bagpipes, people crying. Um, and the best bit about it is we ended up back at the Northern in Invercargill about 8 o'clock and there was a wedding in their reception room and the bride and groom come through and like they were so excited that we got invited into their wedding and we ended up spread out through the wedding and board shorts and something like that eating food <laughs> we had the shield we got pictures with her and we listened to the speeches and like got on the piss at this wedding the whole night it was so crazy um yeah oh, and then on that good. sunday yeah our, we, we got put on the line we got flogged there was um a lot of boys lost their lunch on the sunday um but yeah we went up and nearly won the game against wellington we lost in the last play of the match true the boys were in the sheds crying like, it was genuinely thought we were going to win the comp. Yeah. Um, we just had that feel about us, that swagger about us, and then we lost, and all the boys were crying. You could tell how much it meant to them, and then one of the boys got up and said, hey, lads, we've got the Ramfilly Shield, and we're away to Queenstown tomorrow, and we just, all the boys started roaring. And, <laughs> mate, we went on, like, a four-day trip around Queenstown with the Shield, so we had plenty of good times. Mate, it sounded like you guys had an unreal culture down there. Like you said, it was like a group of mates just playing for each other. You probably weren't the most talented squad in the comp at the time, but, man, you guys were playing for each other. Yeah, and I think the Highlanders were really struggling at that time, and unfortunately we enjoyed going home to play for South and more, which is wrong. Like, Super Rugby should be the team that you give the most to, and I felt like, and I felt that in my team, that I had a far stronger culture in the Southland team at that time through that period of really tough Hollanders stuff. But, um, yeah, look, it was a special team, and unfortunately the decline of Southland rugby has been a little bit sad, and, and I was part of the first four years of it, and um, we, we were on the right track to be a strong union for a long time, and a lot of political things happened, and, and look where the union is now. It's in a bit of a bad way, to be fair. Mm. But even in 2011, you had another good Shield cameo, didn't you? Yeah, we were only half the team then. We, we won it off Canterbury. We lost our first two games. We, we won it off Canterbury with a drop goal and then defended against um, poorly against Counties and poorly against North Harbour. Um, and then Taranaki, I think. You boys come down. Craig Clark, Scooter, Jason Eaton, who are great, like, good friends of mine who I, like, I was absolutely gutted to lose the shield, but I was like so wrapped that a couple of my mates that I respected had won it off me and they had a good time with it as well. So mm. that's what it's about, really. Mate, that is what it's all about, the shield. Anyway, we'll go to your Highlanders. You were told not to be captain early on, but then you did eventually become captain. Jamie Joe gave you the captaincy of the Highlanders. Was that an easy decision for you at this time? Yeah, it was. Um, but back then and even now, Jamie's a... He's one of the best coaches I've had. I learned a lot of him, um, but he's a pretty intimidating guy, and he was back then um, with his Wellington team as well. He trained them hard, and he was a very, um, a very big part of the direction of the team. And he brung that down to home. He, he was exactly what we needed at that time, and 
it was a um, it was an easy option. It was an easy thing, but I had lots of work to do with Jamie. He put um, he put me under lots of different pressures, which I learned a lot about myself. And yeah, look, we had a really good team. Like both years, oh eleven, oh twelve, we missed out on the playoffs by one game. I remember, like we had a good squad too. We had Jose Gear, Tommy Ellison, Slady up front. We had Nasimanu and Hards and Josh Bicuis and. Um, like we had a really good team and we just missed out. So we were like, we we're building and building and building. And then unfortunately in 2013 was a bit of a crazy year for the organization and me personally. They, you know, Hori had come down and he had brought Woody down. Uh, Hori took over the captaincy. They brought Woody, they brought Nonu, they brought Thorne. And we had this amazing team, but we lost eight games in a row. Mm. So, We'd lost our identity of a homeless man. We'd signed up a whole big recruits that, I don't know if they didn't perform, it just didn't click. Um, so I remember we were in the Kings, and we're, it was our seventh game of the season in the Kings, and they were shit. Um, I was sitting in the stands because obviously I wasn't playing because I went from captain to Woody coming in. Jamie said, it's my jersey to lose. So I turned up fit and won like a 17-6 yo-yo at 130 kilos and Woody turned up after All Black Camp and run like a 15-1. And I, I was playing well in the preseason, but he started Woody. Like, it was always going to be Woody that paid a whole lot of money to get him here. And the team they run out to play the Kings was Tony Woodcock, Andrew Hall, Chris King, Brad Thorne, Josh Beckwith, John Hardy, Moses Tylee, Aaron Smith, Colin Slade. Um, we had Tamadi Allison, I think Sean Treby, Ben Smith. Uh, Cade Pokey and Jose Gear. Mm. So, like, there's 14 All Blacks here. And the way the season at Hayden Park and turned to me, he goes, Fuck what? We're going to roll these guys. And I was like, Mate, we're either going to roll them or we'll lose. We'll either win by 40 or we'll lose. And we lost. Like, it was just the way things were going. Um, and yeah, look, it was a really hard time for the organization. Like, I remember Jamie being in tears in one meeting um, with us leadership boys and like, I went from the captain, I wasn't in a strat leader, I wasn't in the leadership group, I wasn't in an attack group, I wasn't in a defence group, I was just a soldier on the ground, turning up to do the promos with the boys, and to be fair, that year I learnt more about myself than any other year, and was you know, a pretty hard experience to go through, but it set me up for, like, now as a coach, understanding what different players go through and all the rest of it, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a pretty crazy time. Mate, that is crazy. And, and how hard is it when you're in a position where you're a starter and then straight away you're off doing the promos and people are asking you, why aren't you playing? You're getting this constantly from people. Yeah. I don't know if social media was a, was a thing back then, but um, just comments from everyone just saying, why aren't you playing? What what have you done sort of thing? And it's just hard for you to answer, eh? Yeah, 100%. Like, I, I copped a social media barrage after I got a red card from for Southland against Otago. Oh, yeah. I'd never experienced anything like it. Um, so I, I sort of understand what people go through. And, oh, mate, you just dive deep into reading things and hearing things. And well, I got into a pretty dark spot after that. But I think um, all players have got to learn, and I learn it the hard way that, you know, if you're going to read stuff that makes you feel good about your self-worth and makes you feel better about a person, well, then you deserve to read the bad stuff that people write about you because 
what you're doing is basing your self-worth off people that you don't know and respect. Mm-hmm. Um, so the guys that you, you respect, and, and a lot of people say that, you know, it might not even be your coaches at the time. It might be uh, one of those coaches that's true to you, a couple of your mates and your parents. So um, I know that we live in this world where we've got so accessible to this negative information and all this kind of stuff. But if you're a true professional, you, your, your self-worth comes off yourself and how you play and then a particular small group around around you that will give you honest feedback about when you're good and bad and the rest of it doesn't matter a fuck. Mm. So what sort of what sort of abuse were you getting after the red card? It must have been a bad red card. Uh, just, yeah, mate, just the same old shit that everyone would always say. It become pretty, you know, he's fucking done, he's fat, he can't scrum, he's not good. Like, you know what I mean? And like, yeah. I played along. And like, this might have only been a small amount of people's opinions, I'm sure, a lot of people in South and, um, you know, were appreciative of what I did, but it was a, yeah, no, it was just something that I went through and was a bit tough at that time, and I learned from it, and you know, I don't really buy into that stuff anymore. Mm. But did you get off social media after that? Nah, I just, I just, it's funny because you can go on there like every player will do it. Mm. You'll play a game, and then maybe the Holmes page will pop up, and there'll be. 300 comments, and if you've had a good game, people go down and read them. Yeah. Like, you'll flick through and be like, oh, Jimmy Ma had a good game, and you'll be on the bus like, yeah, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, you see so many players do it. So, but if you're prepared to go down that line and look for good comments about yourself, you're going to feel bad about the shit ones. So just don't do it at all. Like, don't even buy into it, because it's people sitting at home's opinions that evidently don't don't fucking matter. 100%. I could not agree more. Whopper, that is another great piece of advice mid-podcast. Coming up trumps <laughs> with all sorts of good advice. <laughs> so the year after, you've been dropped from being captain. You're now hardly playing. The following year, is this when you are let go from Highlanders and move up to the Chiefs? Yeah, bud. So halfway through that year, I signed with the Chiefs, told Jamie. I was really upset with Jamie, how he dealt with the whole thing. Because... Um, I actually played really well that year. We first game we won against the Blues. I had a stormer and played like eighty minutes and got a standing O when I come off the field. And oh. I was—I probably knew that was going to be my last game at home for the Hondas because I knew I was going to leave. So I sort of rang my mum and dad and said, "Hey, look, come up. This would probably be my last game." And um, you know, going to the Chiefs was a massive decision for me, but it was based on wanting to be an All Black and still wanting to be an All Black. And I—I I went up there with the ability to scrum with Ben Afiaki and Ben Tamiafuna and be coached by Wayne Smith, Tom Commentary and Dave Rennie um, and play with Sam Kane, Brody Ritalik. And it was just such an amazing opportunity. And um, it was freaking scary for me because like leaving the South Island feels like I'm in France, but I went up there and obviously uh, had an amazing time with your brother up there and learned a shit ton about rugby and had a shit ton of fun. And it's another group of mates that I'll be friends with for the rest of my life. So I, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, how, how did you find um, Dave Rennie? Really, really good. Like, he was one of the best balanced coaches that I've had. Like, he delivered well. Um, he didn't take any shit. Uh, when you're at training, he was a hard bastard, and and you knew that you trained hard with him, and you knew he had a high work ethic, and he demanded excellence off us, and he, he was disappointed if he didn't get it. 
but he'd be the first guy to walk up the bus and talk shit and talk about pubs and mm. yeah and 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 me and Tojo loved that about him. Like we loved that he could clip out a rugby and come talk to us about normal stuff and something that I you know I particularly enjoyed um, working with Renz and unfortunately it didn't go as well as I would have liked at the Chiefs. Like I tried and played some really good games up there. And, I was just in competition with a, a young prop and Paul Asimano and yeah, you know, I, I had some times up there where um, I got dropped and didn't, you know, I missed out on playing. That's a good story, actually. Your brother is a good bugger. Um, <laughs> obviously, the Hollanders, uh, Hollanders and Invercargill would be the best game for me to play in my life. And for whatever reason, they changed the team around a lot that week and I didn't get picked. And I just couldn't believe it, you know, like probably a bit of self-entitlement. Everyone has self-entitlement. When you're playing rugby at a higher level, you think that you owed things or I don't know. Um, I thought that I was owed that game because it was an Invercargill win against my old team. And mm. I couldn't believe it. I, I come home crying and I think Tojo got dropped that week too. And I was in a shitty the Wednesday and I come, I went into training and did a wop bike and I come back and he's sitting on the couch with a big smile on his face. And he told me to go open the fridge and open up the fridge and he put like 24 twoies and 24 spates in this fridge. And it was Wednesday and it was State of Origin. <laughs> and uh, well, we never drink in the midweek. Fucking not a, lot of the, not a lot of the time in my career in New Zealand that I drink midweek. Yeah. Well, Beth come home from work, Tojo's missus, at like 5.36 and we were hammered. And we had, <laughs> we'd taken, <laughs> we'd got a fake mustache and we'd stuck it to the TV and Tojo would have the remote, and if you could pause it on someone's face and it looked like a proper mustache on his face, the other guy had to do two bottles. So <laughs> we did this the whole game, our whole day. And to be fair to say, Beth wasn't that impressed. She kicked us out. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, one of many good days I had with Tojo out there, to be fair. Oh, mate, sounds like you guys had a hell of a time. And he, and he obviously talked about the mongrel mob. Um, story on his podcast the other day. <laughs> Tell, run me through that one from your side of things. Well, I was actually not too bad, but then I actually got a bit scared. I was like, because Tojo rang me up and was like, mate, fuck, you've got to sort this shit out, man. Beth's freaking out. She doesn't want the, the mob to come around. And I'm like, fuck, what do you want me to do? Like, I just wave to him. And, uh, oh, mate, it was good stuff from the McKenzie boys. Um, we had a lot of fucking. We had a lot of games going on up there at that stage. Like my first year living with um, Tojo, we were obviously living with Squid Liam Squire, and man, he's a cracking guy, man. I've actually really, really, really enjoyed Squiddy. Um, he was pretty young then, and we picked on him a fair bit. Um, and we'd play this game when he come home from training. That first to talk to Squid, they had to buy a twenty-four pack on Friday nights. <laughs> So he would come home from training and Tojo Denny, he'd just run to his room and lock the door and Squid would walk in and I'd just pretend to sleep on the couch and then we'd try to avoid Squid for like two or three hours and he would lose it. Um, oh, we were always up to mischief. It was a lot of fun. We oh. played a lot of darts. We, um, yeah, we had a lot of good times. Any good dart stories? Surely you've got a few good dart stories for the boys. Yeah, so as people know, like, Tojo's a wonderful person, but he's the most competitive bastard I've ever met. Like, when he loses, he sucks. And uh, whenever we'd play cards in the 
um, darts at night time, I'd be winning. He would go to bed at like 8.15 <laughs> um, and he wouldn't speak to me. And then whenever he's winning, he'd be up roaring at like 10.30, like prancing around the house. He used oh, to break me. Mate, try um, growing up with him. Far but we, <laughs> um, we had a beer Olympics at home one day um, and we all paired up so see who could drink the most beers and it was like a partners were involved and the McKenzie boys were um, – the McKenzie boys were a team and they were like paying buck one to be booted out for us because they couldn't drink the bloody, they couldn't drink the skin off a wet sheet. And, uh, mate, Tojo, so I got back from rugby and Tojo had been like sitting there playing uh, a, the horse racing cards game with Damien. And anyway, we decided to have the opening ceremony, national anthem before the beer Olympics and um, Damien McKenzie had already gone into the toilet, spewed and jumped out the window and run home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, absolute classic! So old, oh, Swanee old um, Marty had no partner for the night, so he did it pretty tough. <laughs> yeah, he would have battled. And talk me through your. Um, I heard you went up to the Cricket World Cup semi or final. One of the best nights of your life, wasn't it? Yeah, well, that sort of turned out to be one of the first times that I'd like really got pissed. Uh, during the midweek, um, we got back from, from South Africa. We'd lost or drawn to the Sharks over there. There's two red cards in each team. Like, it was a crazy game. Anyway, I got up to the semi-final of the World Cup and I'm um, sitting there with the two McKenzie boys and Brad Weber and Beavers behind me in the box and he's giving me beers. And as we know, what happened that night was probably one of the greatest sporting events in New Zealand history. Yeah. And... Look, I'd had my fill, and I decided, I decided it was a too good opportunity not to go piss up with the beaver. And um, so the McKenzie boys drove home to Hamilton, and Webby was staying up there at a girl's place, and he swore he was going to pick me up at like six thirty in the morning, get me home for training. So off to Danny Doolin's I went, and um, made about four thirty in the morning. It hit me, I'm like, fuck, I've made a bad decision here. Um, I jumped in the taxi and. I taxied all the way back to uh, all the way back into to Hamilton, and I walk in, and Tojo's like, "Mate, what are you doing? We've got training in half an hour." I said, "Yeah, look, I'll, I'll have a shower." So, first meeting, and I like me and Tojo used to sit up the back, and I didn't used to say too much. And Renz was spraying the team about having real poor preparation, and like I remember that week. Um, as I've told you many a time, the scrummaging was a big thing for me. So we didn't have enough props to scrum because we had injuries. So I got our Ford's Coast organised university props to come in and do our scrum session. Yeah. Um, and then Renz is abusing the whole team about like having shit prep and mate, <laughs> I've piped up the back like husky as a little dog. <laughs> I was like, ah, fuck Renz, I disagree. That's bullshit. And Tojo just looks at me, he's like, shh. And I was like, nah, I can't hold myself, Tojo. And I've, I've given it to Renz about that, like, I prepped for that game really well. And, oh, looking back, it was, fuck me. It wasn't a good idea. <laughs> oh, good times. But you obviously look back at your Chiefs career with very fond memories. Hugely. Like, the group of mates um, we used to hang out with was... Me, your brother, um, Andrew Horrell, legend, um, Sammy Kane, Aaron Cruden, Brody Retallick, the McKenzie boys, 
uh, Quinton McDonald. We all lived in the same little area in um, and Webby, and we like we, we had so much fun. We worked hard, we trained hard, and, and I learned the most about rugby up there. I, I I hung off every word that Wayne Smith said. Um, I love getting coached by Rens, and and now that I'm coaching myself, I look back and just realise how much I did learn up there, and um, yeah, it was excellent. So, how did the next part of your career happen? Was it a hard decision to leave New Zealand and give up on your All Black dream? I guess. <sighs> well. I didn't really have an option, Denny. Um, Renz was really good to me. He sort of said, look, we're not probably going to re-sign you for next year. Um, we're going to put you into the draft and we might pick you up on a first-year contract. So, you know, like it's the first time in my life since I've been 18 that I, I never had a contract, and it was really, really scary. Long story short, <laughs> I went home to the farm and I sort of – and I was getting over just trying to be an all-black again and putting so much pressure on myself. And I got a call to go – to play for the Barbars in Twickenham against Argentina. So um, I had a no contract heading over there and there was talk of like a club, London Welsh or some shit club wanted me to play the rest of the season for them. So when I, I pulled my bags to the airport with mum and dad and they were like, well, I don't know when I'll be home, probably for Christmas or maybe after, I don't know. Um, I went and played Barbars and you get your $5,000 cash uh, in your wee envelope and um, – and after the barbers, I was like, fuck, I might as well go down to Montpellier and see my best mate, Tom Donnelly. So I flew down there and um, I got on the piss. There were so many good boys there. A lot of Aussies that I'm now great mates with, Ben Mullen and a guy, Pat Sillias, Jesse Mogg, Nick White, um, Corey Flynn was up in Toulouse. So here I am there on, on the piss for the week, like leading these boys astray. And I get to the aftermatch watching Montpellier play and Jake White come up to me. He was like, oh, Jamie, what are you doing? Um, I was like, mate, I'm on holiday. He's like, oh, we back for super? And I was like, no, nah, I got no contract, but um, things sort of didn't really work out. And he's like, oh, fuck, um, would you be interested in playing here? And I was like, mate, of course I would. Um, he goes, I haven't got a spot for you now, but if there's an injury, I'll give you a buzz. And I said, well, actually, I'm going to Istanbul. I'm going, I want to go down to Anzac Cove and uh, do a bit of travelling before I possibly go home at Christmas. So I'll stay here before... I go on holiday and then I'll come back. So I trained all the way up to Marseille and this is not a word of a lie. I'm, I'm walking down the air bridge to get on the plane and my phone went off and it was Jake White and CJ Vunderland ruptured his bicep tendon um, at training. Wow. So I didn't speak any French. Um, got my all my bags off the airplane. I don't even know how I got my bags back. I don't know how I got back from Marseille down to Montpellier. I didn't know any of the train lines. Um, got back on Wednesday, signed contracts for six months for Montpellier. None of the boys knew either, so none of the guys that I've been pissing up for two weeks know. And I was kept on telling them the story about um, Michael Jordan when he got dropped from his high school team. He used to train on the court beside and just yeah. do just do shots. So I said, "Mate, I'm just going to turn up to training and just like just start running on the side of the field and hopefully get picked up." And then, mate, when I run out to training on Thursday, honestly, the whole squad lost it. They were losing it. True. Um, <laughs> that was the start of my journey overseas, bud. Like, I did a six-month medical joker in Montpellier, which was a hell of a time. Um, then Scott Wisemantle, the current Australian coach, he was coaching there. He knew a bloke in um, America, and he said, do you want to go play in America? So I went to Ohio, had an amazing time there. I signed a contract on a photocopier. I showed it to Ports. He said, you, 
you'd be the stupidest bloke I know if you signed that. And I said, well, you haven't got me anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, what else am I going to sign? <laughs> Nothing. And he was laughing. So had an amazing experience there. And then off the back end of that, um, I was just finished the final um, in the American comp. My mum, my dad, and my uncle were doing a trip through like um, Nashville, Memphis, New Orleans, and the phone rang. It was Poe, um, Carl Heyman, and Simon Mannix. They had an injury to a prop, and I flew over there on an injury cover, really fit, and um, I played the second game, and then I ended up playing every game for the club for the next four years. Crazy. <laughs> Unbe- Nuts, eh? Unbelievable scenes. <laughs> it is absolutely yeah. nuts yeah so yeah every little journey to be fair the last little bit of my life hasn't been about my rugby it's been about how people I've known and also taking like bizarre little opportunities that other people probably wouldn't um the one to go to America was massive because it's like uh, here I am in America in a probably the most exciting competition in the world which is going to blow up and yeah pr- feel pretty privileged and Pretty proud that I had the balls to like go over there at a time where I could have easily stayed in France or done something a lot more mainstream. And mate, again, I met a massive bunch of boys that were like absolute lads. Mm. So your career has been pretty crazy. How you've like the first half of your career, you were purely Southland Highlanders. You were the local legend, and then the second half of your career, you've been everywhere. You've met so many different people. And you're a real big people person yeah. too, aren't you? you? Like you connect well with lots of different people from around the world. So um, how you've done your career is pretty cool. Yeah, and I've always said, I learned my lessons in life from probably the hardest situations, like getting dropped from the Hondas, getting let go by the Chiefs, not making the All Blacks again, um, having my best mate flick me from Southland. And what it taught me was that like, no matter what you're doing, right, rugby's rugby, um, but like I try to... Tr- treat everybody the way I want to be treated myself and like I love having a bit of crack I'm like really professional at my job and when I'm at training I'm really serious but apart from that like like life like yeah just treat other people how I want to be treated and I really I get up and live that every day um, and try to like every time I leave a conversation I want someone to feel better about themselves or be on a buzz and, and um, I really yeah I've learned that and I love I love that's the way I am with people, so Mm. yeah, it's been massive. Mate, you are a good kid. Anyway, as always, we've gone to our Instagram for some questions, and like you said, you've met so many people, (laughs) and a lot of them seem like quite crook customers. we got plenty of questions (laughs) in. (laughs) First question, Phil Burley, all these lads, tell him he still owes me £200 for that jacket he gave to a homeless person. (laughs) Mate, so I travel, this is a lad story, I travel from France up to Wales to watch Hards play his second or third test for Scotland, and I convinced Burrells to come down from, he had been playing for Ember the night before, so he turned up in Wales in the morning like in full Ember kit, and he was like, fuck whopper, I need to go buy, so we went and bought him some clothes, he bought a nice shirt and t-shirt, and then he bought this real nice jacket, like, it was 220 pounds, this nice green long jacket. So we're on the piss that night at Tiger Tiger with the Scottish team. And, um, mate, this story is good. Phil Burley abused Gareth Anscombe's sister and she threw a drink at him. Like, <laughs> I don't know what happened. 
it just all kicked off. And Burrows is wet and Hards is like over it. So <laughs> those two boys stand up and leave and they walk back to their hotel. So I go to the coat room, grab all our coats. And as I get to the hotel room, I'm not allowed in. So I ring Hards and Burrows and I'm like, fuck, let me in. Like I've got all the coats and they're like, no, nah, you can't come up. The security's like real anal. And then I got real shitty and I said to Burrows, mate, if you don't let me in, I'm giving your jacket away to the first homeless bloke I meet. And then he won't. So I put him on FaceTime and I walked up to this homeless guy on this bench and gave him the jacket. And then I went back to the hotel. <laughs> oh, man, we were hammered. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that's ruthless. Love that. Okay. Do you get free whoppers? No. Oh, no, never. But um, I remember we got our skin folds done for the Hondas and one of my first ranges had the whopper on the side of it. Oh, true. So... Me and, me and Scratcher, obviously one of the great lads of all time. Oh, um, legend. He consistently struggled with his skin folds throughout his career. He had had a good day, so we went through Burger King. and um, I pulled up to the window, and, and there, sometimes there are a couple of sandwiches short of a picnic, obviously. It's, <laughs> this lady looked out the window, and she was like, um, is that all? And I said, oh, yeah, I sorry, I get free um, Burger King. Um, I'm sponsored, like, look at my truck. And she leaned out and said, said, oh, it's the Whopper. And she goes, oh, shit. So the manager come out, and he looked like he'd lick more windows than the, than the first person. And um, he was like, have you got your card, your gold card? And I said, mate, it's at home. I'm so sorry, bro. Like, normally I just get free free Burger King. And he's like, I'll tell you what I can do. Um, I'll give you 75% off. Is that okay? And I'm like, yeah, that'll do. <laughs> and we had this massive order. <laughs> so I never got any free, but I did talk myself into a pretty good order that you day. You got a good discount. Oh, that's <laughs> good stuff. Okay, next one. What's the niggliest thing you've ever done on the field? There'll be a few of these. You were a grub. I wasn't. I do know what. I think the decline of that Southam team – because we're so good, and then we went real shit, that's when I become a bit of a grub because I was getting so fucking frustrated. Me and Colsey used to love having a go. Um, <laughs> no doubt. I remember, <laughs> I remember one game down in Rugby Park, he elbowed me in the head in this clean-out, and then I just seen red, and I come into the next clean-out, and as I leaned out, I uppercutted him, and I actually uppercutted him, and he had no mouth guard on, and I knocked out his front tooth, and he <laughs> slipped my hand like four centimetres here and he went right off and then he just got up and started punching Matt Saunders in the face repeatedly and I was like <laughs> I was cracking up and then we get to the scrum and I had my hand was bleeding so bad I had my back pot like short and the ref's like I'm going to sit Ben used to for fighting and Colsey's like mate it wasn't even Saunders there's Whopper that that's C-U-N-T, he's a piece of shit. And he was going right off. Um, and I was hiding my hand because my hand was just full of blood. Um, but he found his tooth on the field after the game. But Thrushy was really interesting. Like, obviously, we're all great mates with Thrushy. He always said that me and Colsey would get along so well. But we just used to get onto the field and fight each other. And actually, now that we're a little bit older, we send each other a few messages. And I've seen him a few times. He's a top man. But it's funny. When you're young, you just think that some guy, you just want to attack him and he wants to attack you and that's what happens. <laughs> Both absolute niggle goats, you two. 
But lads <laughs> off the field. Absolute lads off the field. Niggly on it. Love that. Okay, next question. Crookus Yarn from your Shield celebrations. <laughs> Don't hold back, Wops. On day four, after the we got knocked out of the semi-final, a lot of them were pissing up at our place, and they were, the fire was going, and you know the poker for the fire? Mm. It looked like the shape of the Ramfrey Shield, and these boys were hammered. So, like, <laughs> nine of them are lined up, pants down, bent over the couch, <laughs> and got branded themselves on the ass. <laughs> And it turned out to be the worst decision that any of them blokes have made. Like, I think four of them ended up infected in hospital. Um, the next day at the team photo, they couldn't sit on the chairs. They were in, they were in agony. Oh, you didn't Neon makes Tim boys were leading that judge. No, they tried to do me and I, I run away. There's no way they've done me. Oh, that's good stuff. Okay. What were you thinking during the yes, please moment? I was pretty, like, doesn't look like it, but I had quite a lot to drink. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was funny. Um, but I look back at that video, Christ, it's embarrassing. Like, I look like I'm about 19 years old. Hards looks like a retard. <laughs> Sainsbury wants to knock us out. Um, we just shouldn't have been on TV. It's a bit embarrassing to be here. <laughs> <laughs> One of the great moments of TV, no doubt. Okay. <laughs> Okay, hardest person to scrum against? Oh, shit. Um, most people would agree at, at pro rugby, there's not really an easy day. Everybody's hard. Um, obviously, when I was young, Carl Heyman was really, really good. He used to tickle me up at training all the time. When I went to France, eh, that was where I tested the medal. Um, there's a guy, Slovani, from Claremont in a massive, like, huge big Georgian dude who'd been like in the top 14 for 40, like 16 seasons. And I remember playing them just thinking, holy shit, like I'm just a boy. Mm. Um, that was massive over there. Yeah, there some lonely, lonely days in France. But when I first got to Montpellier, they had four international tie heads. One was Nicholas Muss, who would be 103 kilo and he played 80 or 90 tests for France. And, Looking at him, I was just like, mate, I'm going to murder this bloke. Um, <laughs> mate, he spat me up sideways, upwards, downwards, backwards. Like, I don't even know where he was half the time. Like, um, but I think it was those scrum sessions at Montpellier that made me a way better scrummager. Mm. But uh, it certainly um, was a painful process to go through, to be fair. No doubt. Okay, next one. I heard you're the only prop to do a snow beaver. Um, well, so it's obviously not another one of their Targo lads a coach so what is a snow beaver by the way so that's great stuff Jimmy Ma. I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in because a snow beaver is this little animal that lives in the mountains and uh, he forages for food on the ground but the only time he sticks his head out of his hole is when he's looking for a, like a female snow beaver to breed with <laughs> so last year for the Targo team <laughs> I told all the loose forwards that if I see any snow beavers for the year that I'd kick them off the team. <laughs> <laughs> so if they stuck their head off a scrum, that was counted as a snow beaver. Oh, true. <laughs> and to be fair, we had we had no loose forwards leave the scrum early, so it obviously worked. Mate, you're a great coach. Okay, next question. <laughs> oh. Any tips for a young prop? Um, 
yeah, be patient. Um, be patient, but at the same time, work hard. So always be fit. Um, every prop's different. So like some props don't put on weight easy. Some props hold like whatever your little regime is, you've got to be really good at. So uh, stay fit, stay big and stay strong and just be patient with your technique and make sure you've got good people coaching you and, um, you know, don't don't get over anxious if it's not working straight away. Just hang in there and um, take a few hidings and learn from them and, um, and you'll be far better off. Mate, no wonder you're a coach. Gee whiz. That's powerful. You're in the you're in the right career after footy. Okay, only two more questions. Plans after footy? I'm guessing it's coaching, but yeah. Look, I yeah, I I did a took me twelve years uh, to finish to complete my degree through Massey Uni, um, Bachelor of Sports Science, majoring in like coaching and management. So I always had a passion for coaching um, and it's definitely a pathway I want to go down but it also as you know Jimmy comes with in its purest form it's one of the coolest things you can do like coaching Otago, Tasman getting the lads better, being involved in a group um, I'm just not too sure after being away for 8 or 9 years or 8, 7 years if you want to coach you've got to be prepared to move your family and, and do the whole rugby thing all over again mm. Um, so that's something that's playing on my mind, but it's definitely something I think that I could be good at, um, and have a real passion for. It's just, how does that fit into life? And part of me also is excited about trying something else in life. And I think if you applied the same things you learned from rugby, like we've talked about work ethic and the, the many things in rugby you learn into another job, I think we would all be successful as well. So part of me uh, in the back of my mind wants another challenge at some stage, but um, at this stage I've got an opportunity to coach full-time around the world and back in New Zealand, and um, and I think I'll pursue that for another couple of years. Mm. Any ideas what that other challenge would be? Any Anything else that stands out to, as an interest for you? Um, I've been thinking a little bit about real estate. Um, I grew up on a farm, was a big farm boy, and probably never suited to go back to the farm with my personality, like being such a people's person. Mm. We sold the family farm a couple of years ago. Maybe something in that rural sector, like I actually wouldn't mind getting into radio, um, like rural radio mm. or, or sports radio, um, or there'll be something there. Um, I definitely have nailed down the stuff that I think I want to be or could be good at and that I would enjoy. Yeah, something around those lines. Mate, you'll dominate anything you choose, no doubt. Too gifted. Okay, last question. What is the best piece of advice you've received in your career? And I've said a few guys have come up with the best ones lately, but after what I've heard from this podcast and you've sprinkled little bits throughout this episode, I feel like this could potentially be the greatest piece (laughs) of advice ever. I'm looking forward Uh, to it. (laughs) I don't know. Um, geez, I've probably already said them all. Yeah, well, um, you have said a lot. I think treating other people the way you want to be treated yourself is big. Um, you know, where you put your energy. So there's no point putting your energy into people and places that don't give you the right energy back. Um, 
and you'll learn that in life, like you're going to have good friends and blah, blah, blah. So make sure your energy is always um, going to the people that mean the most to you and give you the most fun back, um, which really comes back to like, as I said, just being myself, always being myself, which can, and you know, um, Jimmy as a coach and sometimes it's actually sometimes really hard to be yourself when you're put under pressure and and do certain things in life but I think one thing I always want to do is is be myself because I think people can tell straight away when you're not and I've had coaches that have become under pressure and become not themselves and then mm. as a player you just see it and smell it straight away so no matter what the situation no matter what's going on just stick to what I know and stick to being myself and stick to treating people well. <sighs> Powerful. That's what I love about hosting a podcast is you get to learn so much from the most intelligent players from all around the world who have seen a little bit of everything. And, mate, what a career. What an absolute career you've had. It's still it gone, Denny. I know. One more year and I'll call it quits. I think if I play next year, I might – get over 350 programs, I think. I might be one or two short. What would stop you from still going if you're feeling good? No, nah, if I was feeling good physically, I would keep going. Mm. Um, but for everybody out there who plays footy, you know it's a serious commitment to get your body ready and to keep it right. It's a massive commitment. Yeah. Um, the running, the fitness. You're either all in, you can't be half-half. Um, yeah, so next year I'm going to give it one more crack and then – Hopefully the F45 guy can throw me a massive party in Austin somewhere and I'll invite everyone all from around the world. <laughs> Private jet, you and Denny over for a, for a weekend? Oh, go on. Mate, how good. Honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, Horse. Looking forward to seeing you in action this year for Otago, if not on the field, but at least in the coaching box. Uh, no doubt you'll do great things with them. And then, of course, back to Austin where... Um, you're doing amazing things by the sounds of it over there. So, mate, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. You're an absolute lad and um, giving up your time in ISO. Thank you very much, Denny, and um, all the best for your season in Tasman. Uh, I don't think we get to play you, eh? No, nah, not from memory. No, nah, all the best, bud, and hopefully um, I need to get up and see Tojo. I haven't seen him for a few years. Yeah, come, so to, come to a trip to Marpua. In November. He'll fill the fridge for you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) Cheers, horse. Cheers, mate.